um, Luke 24, verse, Luke 24, verse 36 through 49 is where we're going to be at today. If you could follow along in your Bible as I read, it begins, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, before, took it and ate it before them. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of the prophets and, the, and Mo, uh, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to them to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I want to preach to you this morning and tag my termin divine, du, uh, du, I've got to remember my own title here, divine design and the disciple's duty. A bit of a tongue twister. Divine de design, you got that part? And the disciple's duty. Let's pray and as you can see, I'm stumbling through my words already this morning, so let's ask God for help. Father, we come before you this morning, and I ask that you would help me as I preach today. I pray that you would remove any distractions, things that I might say that could be distracting, things that happen around us that could be distracting, that we would see Christ in his word, that we would hear Christ in his word this morning. I pray, God, that you would show us that the duty that we have as Christians is not random, uh, it is not arbitrary, but it is according to your divine plan, your design for this world, for our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone once said, it is easy to determine when something is aflame. It ignites other material. Any fire that does, that does not spread will eventually go out. Let me read that last line one more time. Any fire, he says, that does not spread will eventually go out. Well, I've got two words of good news as we begin. Number one, the gospel fire will never go out. It will continue to spread because it is a true flame from the Holy Spirit. And number two, we have a part in the spreading of that fire. This, God has not just saved us for us to now just sit back and watch as spectators, but he has 
included us in his plan of how the fire of the gospel will spread across all of creation. Like a good TV show, our story continues. Right where we left off last week is where we pick up this week. The saga continues in verse 36. It says, as they were talking about these things. You might, you might remember at the end of last week's story, we were left with the disciples. Uh, Jesus had met two men on the road to Emmaus and appeared to them, taught them the scriptures. They were excited at the appearance of the risen Jesus. They rush back to Jerusalem, the seven miles. By the time they get back, they discover that Jesus has already appeared to Simon, and the disciples are already there rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead and has showed himself. And then as they're talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them. He appears. And he says to them, peace to you. How phenomenal is it that Jesus greets his disciples with peace? Look, from the very beginning of time, man and God have been at war. Since Adam first rebelled against God and took that bite of the fruit, man has been warring against God. Rebellion, envy, murder, strife, sexual immorality, idolatry, the list goes on. And by the way, it's a lopsided war. Meaning man has no chance to stand before the all-powerful, holy God. The only hope that man could have is if there is in some way forgiveness offered for sins. What's amazing is that when Jesus first appears to his disciples, that he offers peace. You see, on the cross, Jesus was crushed so that his disciples might stand. In Jesus' death, he took the damnation that his disciples deserved so that they might be recipients of peace. When you read Jesus say to his disciples, peace to you, that should just well up a hearty amen in your soul. Because Jesus could have come with vengeance. He could have come at them with with all of the anger and the wrath and the judgment of God. I mean, just think of the ways that they've run from Him and betrayed Him and and denied Him. And, And here He comes and He offers peace. How can Jesus offer peace to His disciples? Well, Colossians 1.20 says, All things are reconciled by making peace through His blood. Paul further explains how we have peace through Christ in Romans 5.1. Therefore, he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His work on the cross, man has peace. And not just with God, but man has peace with fellow man. Because we not only war with God, but we see that war played out between human beings. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, woman, man, rich, poor, black, white, 
Asian, Hispanic. What does the Bible say about this? Ephesians 2.14, it says, He himself is our peace, who has made both one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. On the cross, Jesus brought peace. And so he greets his disciples, peace to you. Now, the first response at the risen Jesus is not joy, as you might think, but it says in verse 37, they are startled and frightened as they thought they saw a spirit. Three questions then Jesus asks his disciples to show that he is not just some spirit or some delusion of their imagination. The first question he says in verse 37 is, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? Meaning, does, does a spirit have flesh and bone? Jesus is standing before his disciples with actual skin, covering muscles, covering ligaments, covering bones, an actual body. Why are you troubled? Not a spirit. Second question, why do doubts arise in your heart? Also verse 37, why are you doubting? Like the angels to the women at the empty tomb, like Jesus to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus here rebukes the disciples for doubting the fact that he would even be risen from the dead. Like, weren't the scriptures sufficient? Why are you doubting God's word? Why are you doubting what has been revealed? Why are you doubting Jesus' own teaching on the fact that he will die and three days later rise? Why do you doubt? And so he shows him his hands and his feet. And we discover in John that the markings of the nails are still present as they put their hands in touch. Jesus' hands and his feet. The third question he says, asks is in verse 41, he says, have you anything to eat? Look, when I walk into your house and I say, hey, you got any food? I'm not being greedy. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. Amen? <laughs> what you got to eat in here? And this isn't just a random detail in the story. This isn't just simply showing the fact that they were actually making broiled fish and had an, an additional piece to be hospitable. But rather, uh, Luke here is making a point as he's bringing all this together. The point is this, is that spirits don't eat food. Delirious visions don't get hungry and actually eat. But, but Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's the point. That he was in his actual body three days later, risen from the dead, and it says they watched him eat. He eat, ate in their presence. Now, we're about to get to the mission. We're about to get to the disciples' duty. But before we get to the mission, Jesus gives them proofs. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then all of our faith would be in vain. Look, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I understand why you have no motivation in the mission. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, everything changes. Your whole understanding of life changes. Your whole definition of, of how you want to live your life changes. And so Jesus shows that he is risen from the dead. Now, after dinner is Bible study. He eats some fish. And then it says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand 
the Scriptures. Look at verse 44. It says He spoke to them. These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of the prophets and uh, law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So like the, men on the, two, uh, uh, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus, he starts in, with Moses, maybe with, probably with Genesis, and just starts going through the whole Old Testament, what we understand now to be the Old Testament, which for them was the Scriptures, and, and explains the Bible to them. He opens their mind to understand the Scriptures. He spends time in Bible study with his disciples. He goes on and he says in verse 46 that it's all been by divine design. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Not just randomly suffered. Not suffered by surprise. But rather, it says he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The point is divine design. That God has always planned these uh, events to occur. Which means uh, His suffering was not by the sloppy scheming of man. But it was by the divine design of God. It was not a divine surprise. But it was God's plan. It was His plan that Christ would suffer to purchase a church with his blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It was all planned. He goes on to say the resurrection, same thing, that he would rise. The resurrection of Jesus was not plan B. It was not an afterthought, but it was revealed in the mind of God from the very beginning of this plan. As it says in Psalm 16, verse 10, the Holy One will not see corruption. It was by divine design, the cross and the resurrection. But here's where I want to go today. Going into verse 47, there's an and. And is a connecting word. And. Here's the next chain of divine, uh, chain link of divine design. It is this, verse 47. And that repentance... That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. From the very beginning, it was God's plan that Jesus would suffer and die. And from the very beginning, it was God's plan that God's people would go into all of the world and proclaim that message. And we see this in the very beginning of the story. When God calls Abraham, He makes a covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, He says to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Part of the initial covenant that God makes with man here is that all nations are going to, in some fashion, be blessed by this seed coming through Abraham. Isaiah tells us that the chosen one will be a light 
not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, verse 6. And we see this also in the model of Jonah, as Jonah is told, go into Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the message I give to you. So, we got Bible study now with Jesus, but the mission is about to begin. What I'm trying to show you is this. As much as the cross was part of God's divine design, as much as the resurrection was part of the, the divine design, the sending of the students is part of His divine design. The commissioning of the saints is part of God's divine design. Meaning our mission in this world is not detached from God's sovereign plan of redemption, but it's part of it. Now don't get me wrong, redemption was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. However, the Bible asks a question, how shall they hear without a preacher? My, my brother Ben, my older brother, he took scuba diving lessons 12 years ago and and he got certified in scuba diving, and after the lessons were over, his instructor told the class that you've got to now go out and spend thousands of dollars and get your own scuba equipment. And the instructor warned the class that many people go through the classes and get the instruction, and they never actually do anything with the knowledge that they've received and continue to scuba, scuba dive. And my brother as he tells me this story, he says, you know how many times I've gone scuba diving in the last 12 years? Zero. You, you, you want to you get the information, but you don't want to do anything with it. You know, too many saints are all about the learning, but they, they miss the lesson. They want the lecture, but they, they miss the love for the lost. They want the study, but they miss the sending. They want the class, but they miss the commission. And they, they, they say things like this, well, look, if God is going to save, then God is going to save with or without me. If people are going to get saved, you know, why do I need to do anything about it? I'm just going to kind of sit back and sit on my hands. I'm not going to have any urgency in my evangelism because God's just going to do what God is going to do. Look, if your scholarship stunts your mission, there's something wrong with your scholarship. If your study of sovereignty leads you to a sanctimonious apathy, there's something wrong with your study. Knowledge alone puffs up. In contrast, Jesus preaches and then he points. Meaning our Christian mission is not detached from everything else that God is doing in the world. So it's quite simple. Our response to the resurrection is what? We've been through the Gospel of Luke. We've witnessed the, the resurrection of Jesus. Our response to the resurrection is what? It's the same response that his disciples were to have 2,000 years ago. And we see that in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Meaning, divine design drives the disciples' duty. 
So what is the disciple's duty? What are we called to go and do? Well, in verses 47 through 49, I'm pleased to tell you that you already have everything that you need for this job, for this task, for this mission. In verses 47 through 49, we see that we already have our message. We already have access to the masses. And we already have the power that we need. Look at it. First, we already have, you've got the message. You've got the message. You don't need to find it. You don't need to go looking for it. You don't need to spend hours developing. You've already got the message. Look at verse 47. Here's the message. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's interesting he says repentance here. He doesn't say belief. Now, why is that? Well, it's because repentance and belief really are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. We often think of those, two, those as two separate things, but they're two sides of the same coin, meaning uh, repentance is to repent of unbelief. Uh, repentance is to change your mind about who you believe your Savior is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So often we think of repentance as an action or as a work. But the Bible says to bear fruit in keeping re with repentance. Fruit is the change. Fruit is the action. What is repentance then? Re repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of belief. And so he's saying, uh, preach then repentance and forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. I was interviewed once. By, by a fellow pastor, and, and he asked me, uh, what is the hope that the church offers the world? And in retrospect, I, I believe he thought I was going to say something like community transformation, building houses, jobs, defending the life of the unborn, fighting racism. And I said, well, the hope that we offer the world is in Christ we have forgiveness of sins. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, but then what? But what else? Yeah, what else? Like, since when is forgiveness of sins not enough? Since, since when is forgiveness of sins trivial? Since when is forgiveness of sins uh, something that we just need to get beyond so that we can get to the what else of community transformation? Since when is the forgiveness of sins insufficient in what we are trying to present to the world? You see, so often we get uh, focusing on these various problems of society, which there are many, by the way, and we think that our main solution is to fix these problems. But look, church, our main, our main problem, our main problem is not anything that you can see with the eye. Our main problem is not ethnic oppression. Our main problem is not abortions and the legality of it. Our, our main problem is not a crumbling neighborhood. Our main problem is not violence in the streets. Our main problem 
is the problem behind the problem. And that is enmity with God because you are in your sins. Now, we don't preach forgiveness of sins because we try to be nice. You say, well, how does that lead us to try? How does leading us, how does being nice lead us to not preach forgiveness of sins? Well, if you're nice, you're not going to tell somebody that they need forgiveness of sins. <laughs> right? If you're nice, you're never going to get to the point where you look somebody in the eye and say, you're not saved, you're on your way to hell. Right? You're under the, the, the damnation of God. You're under wrath, uh, the judgment of God. There are so many folks on their way to hell because Christians are trying to be nice. But no, our message, church, is that we preach and not just damnation and wrath, but forgiveness of sins. You've got to know what the problem is in order to know what the remedy is. Amen. Now, like my children sometimes, we forget the message. You know, like I tell my kids, like, hey, uh, go tell mom, mommy. Uh, I always say mom. They call her mommy. Go tell your mother. There we go. They correct me. Mom? Who's mom? Go tell your mother that dinner, uh, that I'm making dinner. And then like five or ten minutes later, they come back and they're like, what, what were we supposed to say? And my wife is like, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? Like, they're, they're all over the place. They have no clue what... The, the, the message was simple. Dinner is being prepared, right? Look, our biggest enemy is not a lack of opportunities to share the gospel. Sometimes our biggest enemy is our own clarity in sharing the gospel and calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is the message the message is that, that we've got a Savior in Christ who uh, through belief, trusting in Him, repentance, the work that He's done in His life on the cross through the resurrection that we can be recipients of the forgiveness of sins. But we get so confusing in our communication of this gospel message that people don't know if you're talking about a community cleanup or moral manipulation or political persuasion or religious rights. They don't even know what the Christian message is because we've combined it with all of these other applications. Now listen, there's a place for Christian application. Don't get me wrong. But if you feed a starving man a full meal, he's going to die. You've got to give him the milk. Right? The gospel application is not the gospel. And so we've got to lead with the clarity of what the gospel is. And today, I think more than any other times uh, in the last four years, it gets really confusing, right? Because you get Christians on both sides of the aisle who forget what the Christian message is, and they think that getting a Republican uh, or keeping a Republican in office is the Christian message. That the Christian message is uh, uh, a hope in the Supreme Court. Or that the Christian message is dethroning the Republican and getting Joe Biden in there. And all I'm saying is this, church. The Christian message is not that Jesus died uh, to make you left or to make you right. 
Jesus didn't die for a political party, and he didn't even die for the United States of America. The United States of America is not our hope. And look, on our money it says, in God we trust. Not in the Supreme Court, not in the President, not in the United States of America. This is what we've got to remember on November 4th, that our hope is in Jesus Christ. Now listen, don't get me wrong, there is a place for activism. Like we are civilians, we have a place and a role and a voice in this society. But all I'm saying is this, is when, when, when the forgiveness of sins, when that message seems underwhelming, we have an overwhelming problem. The solution must be supernatural because we have a supernatural problem. And so what is the solution? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're tasked then with this message to take it to the world. That's, that's the next point here is that we've got the message and we've also got the masses. Jesus goes on to say uh, that this is to be proclaimed in his name, which, which means that he, he is the one who has authority over salvation. In his name was always used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now it's transferred to Jesus saying that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the one who is uh, the architect of salvation that uh, forgives sins. We preach it in his name to who? Jerusalem? To people that look like you? To people that you're familiar with? To only your family members? Or to, to only people in another country and not to your family members? No, it goes to all people, to, to all nations, to all people groups. The universal call here, the, the universal mission is what is so unique about this. It would have been shocking for the modern Jewish reader to read that this, this message is not just for Jerusalem, but it's to go beyond. Now, don't get me wrong, it is for Jerusalem. He says, starting here in Jerusalem, beginning from Jerusalem, the first church will be planted where? In Jerusalem. However, it's going to go to Ethiopia pretty soon. It's going to go to Ephesus pretty soon. It's going to go to Colossae. It's going to go to Asia. It's eventually going to go to the Americas. It's going to go around the globe. Church, we've got the masses. On one hand, let us apply this to Christian missions. We can't ever get too comfortable and forget Christian missions. Now, what I mean by that is raising people up, getting behind people to leave their culture and to go to people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. According to missiologists, there are 7,413 unreached people groups. That is defined uh, by having no access to the gospel. So there's no church, there are no Christians that live anywhere near them. They have no access to hear of Jesus Christ, 7,413 unreached people groups. That constitutes about 3.23 billion people. Now, many of them are unreached, not out of a, a lack of desire from missionaries, but a lack of ability. 
uh, they, they are hard to find. They're in countries where missionaries are not allowed to come in or Christians are not allowed to come in. And so therefore, church, we need to pray for missions. As part of our Sunday evening prayer gatherings, we regularly lift up a people group to the Lord and say, God, here's an unreached people group. Would you somehow work it out to where we can go to them, send somebody to them so the gospel can come to these people who are lost and dying? We need to continue to train people for that sake of sending out missionaries, to get behind supporting people uh, with, with money uh, for their training and then for their sending. We need to remain a church focused on more than just Baltimore City and then just our state and our country. However, this also can be applied to Baltimore City as well. It doesn't mean that we just simply send out missionaries and not do mission here, right? Now, Baltimore is, uh, uh, by definition, put into the category of reached. The whole country is. What that means is that people have access to the gospel. There are churches, there are Christians. They have access to the gospel. But, let's think about it, is Baltimore really reached? You see what I'm saying? So 48% of Baltimore, according to statistics, uh, claim to be religious. But if we, well, let's just stop right there. Let's just assume all 48% are actually regenerate Christians. That would still mean we got over 300,000 people in the city that don't know Jesus. All right? But as we look at that number of 48%, and we start thinking through like, all right, people have just marked the box because that's their culture, Right? We start thinking through the vast number of churches who have abandoned the gospel, completely confused the gospel, lost the gospel. Like that number starts to dwindle. We don't know the actual number of regenerate Christians in Baltimore, but I doubt it's 48%. We got a mission all around us, church. Uh, Whenever I pray for more evangelistic opportunities. It's as if God just simply opens up my eyes to the opportunities that I already have. I mean, he answers my prayer requests all the time, and I pray that whenever I feel like I'm in a slump in my own evangelism, I start to pray, God, give me evangelistic opportunities. And he rarely answers that request by sending me a new relationship. (laughs) He usually just points me to opportunities that I don't want to go to. That, I, that have been in front of me this entire time or that I just simply haven't seen. We've got opportunities to live out this Christian duty all the time and all around us. Number three, you've got the power. Sounds like a good song, doesn't it? You've, you've got the message, you've got the masses, and you've got the power. Jesus says, as he closes with them, In verse 49, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. But stay in the city. Some years ago when the hills were living over on Payson Street, my my dad was with me and we went over there to look at their dryer. I think I might have told you this story before. And we were looking at their dryer, and it wasn't working, so my dad was kind of like, my dad happens to fix appliances. So he was looking at the connections and everything, and he realized the gas line was turned off. Remember this, Eric? So he turned on, and I think you would turn it off because somebody had smelled a gas leak or something at some point. I don't know why. Anyway, he turned on the gas, and all of a sudden the dryer started to work. 
go figure, you know? And Aisha was uh, profusely thanking my father for fixing the dryer, and he was like, you know, I just turned on the power. <laughs> just turned on the gas. Um, look, you are about as an effective of a witness for Jesus without the Holy Spirit as a dryer is in drying clothes without power. You get what I'm saying? Without power, you've got nothing. Without power, your words are in vain. Without power, you're jumbled in your thinking. Without power, there, there's no... I mean, how can you turn the lights on for somebody who is spiritually dead? How can you wake up a dead body? You've got nothing without the Holy Spirit. But the good news is this, is that you already have the power. Like, it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, you are my witnesses, now go. How striking is it that he says, but wait. But wait. Because you need the power for a supernatural mission. We need a supernatural power. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no church. There is no regeneration. There is no mission. And there is no power in our work. But I'm not telling you, saints, to go out and find it. I'm not telling you that there's some secret conference that'll flip the switch on for you or some Bible verse to pray uh, that'll switch the flip on for you. But no, uh, Acts 1.8 says the Holy Spirit came so that they might be witnesses. And Ephesians 1, we're told that all who trust in Jesus are sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning every believer, every regenerate believer who has been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ has been filled with the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that you already have the power that you need. One couple took their two children to Carlsbad Cavern, an 11-year-old boy and a 7-year-old girl. As they got to the bottom of the cavern, as, as deep as they could go, the darkest point, the tour guide flipped off the lights to dramatize how dark and how silent it is underneath the earth's surface. And immediately the, the little girl burst out into tears and and her brother's voice was heard, and he said, don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn the lights on. Look, I don't know about you, but darkness can be horrifying. I don't mean physical darkness. How many of you know that the, the darkness of this world is absolutely horrifying? The darkness of sin, the darkness of guilt, the darkness of judgment is overwhelming. And in this most overwhelming Moment when the task seems impossible. I wonder if you know that there is somebody who knows how to turn the lights on. Isaiah continues in Isaiah 42 7, the one who's coming is a light to the Gentiles, and I'll keep reading, to open the eyes that are blind, to feed, uh, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Meaning on Friday, the darkness overwhelmed uh, uh, Jesus. The blind eyes were, would be forever blind. Those, as Jesus died, would be forever in chains if it weren't for Sunday morning. But Sunday morning comes along, and the light rises from 
the dead. Question, has he opened your eyes? Have you seen this light? Church, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. In him you find forgiveness. He is your only hope of forgiveness. He is your only hope to find peace in this world. But how great his light is. When you see Jesus, how glorious of a Savior he is. So check it out as we wrap things up here. Jesus is the light of the world. The Holy Spirit is the one who knows how to turn the lights on. Your duty is to just simply lift up Jesus crucified. By divine design, he died. By divine design, he rose from the dead. And by divine design, I'm going to tell somebody about it. Amen? Father, we thank you for the fact that your design is wonderful. We thank you for the fact that you have included us in redemptive history. That Jesus accomplished the work on the cross. And we have been commissioned to go into the world with the message of the gospel. I pray, God, that we would keep that message at the forefront of all of our conversations, all of our hope, that we would never get beyond the forgiveness of sins, but that we would always delight in the fact that Jesus paid it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.